Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source for all things IFRS. I'm your new host, Rahaza Sheikh. I'm very excited to be hosting PwC's IFRS Talks podcast. For those that don't know me, I'm a senior manager in the Global Accounting Services technical team at PwC, and I'm passionate about all things IFRS. IFRS Talks aims to provide an update on the latest accounting developments, what to look out for, and how this might impact you. Andrea has done a fantastic job over the past couple of years, and I wish her all the best in her new role. So let's begin. Today's IFRS Talks is a continuation from podcast 127, and I'd like to welcome back Karsten Ransauri. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, Rehaza. Thanks for the warm welcome and uh, looking forward to working with you more closely going forward. Thank you. So the March IFRS Interpretations Committee, there were two agenda items that focused on the accounting implications of special purpose acquisition companies, also referred to as SPACs. Both of these agenda items had a similar underlying theme, which is the age-old question of whether an instrument was debt or equity. The first of these agenda items questioned what the effect of shareholder discretion was on the entity's ability to avoid payments in cash or another financial asset, and therefore how that might impact the classification as a liability or equity. And the second agenda item was a scoping question to understand whether IFRS 2 or IS 32 is the applicable standard, and if it is IS 32, is the classification liability or equity? Carsten, should we begin by reminding our listeners what a SPAC is and how they are structured? Sure. So a special purpose acquisition company or SPAC is an entity that is created with capital from its initial investors and then undergoes an IPO to raise additional capital with the intention of acquiring you know, one or more unspecified operating companies or opcos. The IPO proceeds are placed into a trust and the SPAC typically has around 18 to 24 months to identify and complete the acquisition of a target company, which is often referred to as the SPAC merger. You know, the, once the SPAC IPO has happened and before the SPAC merger, a SPAC is essentially an entity that is listed on a stock exchange and which does not have any operating business. It buys, basically just has cash and the financing. So if the target search is successful, at the time of the spec merger, the OPCO becomes a public company or, or the legal subsidiary of a public company via the merger with the spec. However, if the spec does not complete the spec merger within a specified time frame, and in the absence of any extension, the spec will typically liquidate and return the remaining IPO proceeds to its shareholders. So, so what's the purpose of these structures? Well, from the perspective of the OPCO, the purpose of the spec is essentially to be a vehicle you know to achieve a listing on a stock exchange without going through the formal and often time consuming process of an ipo in order to achieve this the spec may legally acquire the opco so that the opco becomes the legal subsidiary of the spec or the or the opco may acquire the spec now the structure of these transactions vary quite a bit for example it's quite common to create a new entity or a new co that would be involved in the transaction in addition to the previously existing spec and opco. Now, there are various reasons for involving a new co. Most commonly, a new co would be involved for tax reasons 
on the case of a spec listed in the US. The purpose of the new core may also be to achieve foreign private issuer or FBI status and thus allow an entity to prepare financials based on IFRS rather than having to prepare US GAAP financials. The balance sheet of these specs are typically very simple as they would typically you know, just contain cash and the financing. However, these transactions would often still involve highly complex accounting questions. These complexities typically arise both before and at the time of the spec merger. Now, the first issue that needs to be analyzed is typically whether the entity or the spec is the acquirer for accounting purposes. There will typically also be complex questions in a number of other areas, including issues around share-based payment, both in relation to the employee services provided by the spec founders and in relation to a listing service provided when the spec merger is executed, as well as questions around the accounting for any shares and warrants issued in these transactions and whether these instruments would be classified as debt or equity. So I, I was not planning to go into all of these complexities, but I will touch upon a few of these in a minute when we talk about the issues that have been submitted to the IFRIC in that regard. So, so overall, I think we definitely have some really interesting and quite complex topics on the agenda for our listeners today. So it will be a challenge. It's not going to be easy, but I promise I will do my best and try to convey these as simple and clearly as possible. Thanks, Carsten. Indeed, definitely quite a complex fact pattern and quite a complex structure that we're dealing with, which do bring about many accounting challenges. Let's move on to the first issue. Could you perhaps just provide a little bit more background to our listeners on what the fact pattern was? Yes, sure. So on, on this first issue, the issue essentially relates to the accounting for the financing provided to the SPEC in the SPEC's financial statements after the SPEC IPO, but before a SPEC merger occurs. So in the submitted fact pattern, a SPEC has issued two, two classes of shares, founder shares and public shares. Now, to better understand the background of the issue, let's have a look at what might happen in the SPEC after a SPEC listing. Either the SPEC identifies and acquires a target within a specified time frame, in which case there will typically be some form of put option for the holders of the public shares, or the spec does not execute the transaction, in which case the spec is either liquidated or the shareholders may decide to extend the life of the spec with the objective of, of continuing to search for a suitable target. Now, the terms of these arrangements vary. For example, the decision as to whether to acquire an identified target company may be approved either by the shareholders or the management of the spec, depending on the terms and conditions of the spec statutes. However, once a target is identified and approved, the public shareholders individually have the right to require the reimbursement of their shares. In some specs, however, only shareholders voting against the acquisitions have to have this right. So if no company is acquired within a specified period of time, the spec is liquidated unless the statutes of the spec allow for an extension of the spec's life and the shareholders vote in favor of such an extension. Upon liquidation, the net proceeds of the spec of the spec's IPO would then be distributed to the spec's shareholders. However, quite importantly, typically there will also be a possibility to extend the life of the spec, which I understand would generally already be part of the contractual terms when the instruments are issued. Also, the procedure how the spec's lives can be extended varies in practice. So 
in the submitted fact pattern, the decision to extend the specs life is either approved by two thirds of the shareholders in a shareholders meeting or by two thirds of the founder shareholders and two thirds of the public shareholders independently in two separate shareholder meetings. So the exact structure of these arrangements can vary quite a bit. Thanks, Carsten. That was a really helpful summary of the fact pattern. Could you now maybe provide a little bit background on the accounting issue that arises as a result of these decisions? Sure. So, so quite simply, the question raised in the submission was whether the public shares should, should be classified as equity or as a financial liability. In order to assess that question, you know, essentially the question is whether the spec entity has a contractual obligation to deliver cash or another financial asset. So this may sound like a simple question, but in fact, it's not. The complexity here is to assess whether decisions that are made by the shareholders, say in a shareholders meeting, are considered to be decisions of the entity. Definitely not an easy issue. So uh, what were the committee's views on this issue? Yeah, so, so given the shareholders have the right to extend the life of the spec, the complexity is whether the life of the spec can be extended indefinitely and whether a shareholder decision made in the shareholders meeting should be considered to be a decision of the entity. So again, in simple terms, the key question really is whether and if so, under which circumstances a decision that is made in a shareholders meeting would be considered a decision of the entity itself. Again, IS32 is clear that there's a, a liability if the entity does not have an unconditional right to avoid delivering cash or another financial asset. However, this standard essentially has no guidance to determine whether a decision of shareholders is treated as a decision of the entity. So the committee observed that IS32 contains no requirements in that regard and also acknowledged that similar questions about shareholder decisions arise in other circumstances. Also, this matter has been identified as one of the practice issues that the ISB will address in its financial instruments with characteristics of equity or FICE project. Therefore, the committee concluded that the matter described in the request is in isolation too narrow for the ISB or the committee to address in, in an efficient manner. And so the ISB should consider the matter as part of its broader discussions on the FICE project. For these reasons, the committee tentatively decided not to add a standard setting project to the work plan. However, the committee nonetheless noted the importance of the spec disclosing information in the notes about the classification of its public shares. Thanks, Carson. I think that's um, really helpful and a, a definitely an important one, even though there may not be a finalized agenda decision explaining how to account for this currently there is still the expectation that disclosure should be provided based on existing requirements so let's move on to the second question which seems to have maybe a slightly unexpected analysis in our view could you start by providing our listeners again around the, the background on the fact pattern of this issue sure so so this submission is another submission on the accounting related to a spec However, this submission is essentially about the accounting for a particular type of spec at the time of the spec merger. More specifically, the request asked how the entity accounts for warrants that are issued in a particular spec structure at the time of the spec merger. So this is quite a complex fact pattern that results in complex accounting issue. So 
this isn't going to be easy, but I, I'll try my best to keep this as simple as I can. So let me start by describing the fact pattern in a bit more detail. In the fact pattern, the committee discussed an entity acquires a spec that has raised cash in an IPO. So the purpose of the acquisition is for the entity to obtain the cash and the specs listing. Now, quite importantly for the accounting analysis, that spec typically just holds cash in the financing. And therefore, the spec does not meet the definition of a business in IFRS 3. So before the acquisition, the spec's ordinary shares, which are classified as equity, are held by its founder shareholders and public investors. Now, in addition to ordinary shares, the SPAC had also issued warrants to both its founder shareholders and public investors. So in addition to the founder shares and the, and, and the public shares, the SPAC has also founder warrants and public warrants. Now, the founder warrants were issued at the SPAC's formation as consideration for services provided by the founders before the SPAC merger. And the public warrants were issued to the public investors with ordinary shares at the time of the IPO. So in the SPEC merger, the entity via a new co acquires the SPEC by issuing new ordinary shares and warrants to the SPEC's founder shareholders and public investors in exchange for the SPEC's ordinary shares and warrants. So essentially, the SPEC shareholders give up their existing shares and warrants in the SPEC in exchange for new ordinary shares and warrants of the entity, in this case via a new co. Also, the entity's owners control the group after the transaction and the spec becomes a wholly owned subsidiary of the entity. So the entity effectively replaces the spec as the entity listed in the stock exchange. And finally, the fair value of the instruments issued to acquire the spec exceed the fair value of the identifiable net assets of the spec. Now, this is because the entity would be willing to pay a premium to compensate for the fact that the spec is a listed entity. So, so essentially, the entity is also paying for a listing service in order to get listed on a stock exchange. So in, in the case of the submission, another complexity is that the OPCO entity is issuing new shares and warrants via a new co that sits on top of the OPCO as a holding company before the spec merger. So, so these transactions are quite complex. And so I realized that even the simplified fact pattern that has been submitted is still quite complex. So in very simplified terms, I think this can be summarized as follows. An entity acquires a spec, which does not meet the definition of a business and essentially has nothing but cash and a, relate, and a related financing, as well as a listing on a stock exchange. In exchange for the acquisition, the shareholders of the SPAC that have been holding both shares and warrants in the SPAC receive new shares and warrants that are issued by the entity. Thanks, Carson. I think that was really helpful just to walk us through, you know, the pre-merger and post-merger accounting, how it all sort of comes together. So following that background, put simply, what, what was the crux of the accounting issue that the committee were discussing? So submitter asks two questions in relation to the warrants that are issued as part of the spec merger by the new co to the spec shareholders. The first question is whether these warrants are in the scope of IFRS 2, so the share-based payment standard, or whether they represent a liability assumed by the entity as part of the acquisition. And the second question is, if the warrants are in the scope of IFRS 2, whether they remain so after the acquisition date. 
Now, for background, let me remind folks that IFRS 2 and, and IS32 contain different classification requirements for financial instruments within their scope. So, for example, a warrant that fails the fixed for fixed criterion for classification as an equity instrument could still be considered an equity instrument for purposes of IFRS 2 and thus could be part of an equity settled share based payment transaction. That's really why you know, this, this question um, about the scope arises or primarily why this question about the scope arises. Thanks, Karsten. Definitely, the, the interesting discussions are always around those that are crossing different scoping standards. Um, so what, what did the committee think about this? Yeah, so, so again, this is, you know, quite a complex fact pattern with quite complicated accounting issues involved. So I, I wasn't planning to go into all these complexities, but let me try to summarize, you know, some of the key points from the discussion. So the first question that needs to be analyzed is who is the acquirer in the transaction and whether there's a business combination. Now, those listeners who are familiar with business combinations accounting will be aware that the entity that is legally acquiring another entity is not necessarily the acquirer from an accounting perspective. So in the submitted fact pattern, the entity rather than the spec is the acquirer for accounting purposes. Also, because the acquiree, that is the spec, essentially just contains cash and the financing, it does not meet the definition of a business. Therefore, the spec merger does not meet the definition of a business combination, IFRS 3, and the transaction would instead essentially be accounted for as an acquisition of cash and a listing service. Second, it needs to be considered how to account for the financing in the spec. And in particular, whether the warrants in the spec are assumed as part of the acquisition, that is whether the spec warrants are part of the net assets acquired. Now, this is not an easy question considering that the spec warrants are replaced by new warrants issued by the acquirer as part of the spec merger. So essentially the question here is whether the warrants should be considered to be extinguished when doing the acquisition accounting. And so whether the new shares and warrants are only issued for the acquisition of cash and the service, or whether instead the spec warrants are part of the net assets acquired and then replaced with the new warrants immediately thereafter. Now on this question, the committee tentatively decided to issue some rather generic consideration on what to consider in making this assessment, you know, which would include consideration of the legal structure of the transaction, as well as the terms and conditions of the warrants in the spec and in the entity before and after the transaction. So on this point, depending on the specific terms and conditions of the transaction, the entity might conclude that the terms and conditions are, are such that it either assumes the spec warrants as part of the acquisition or that it does not assume the spec warrants as part of the acquisition. Now, that determination of whether the warrants are assumed as part of the transaction is a key question in the analysis that, that really drives the accounting. This is because if the warrants are assumed as part of the acquisition, this means that there's a financial liability assumed as part of the net assets acquired. So essentially, this means that the accounting guidance for financial instruments in IS32 applies in terms of classifying those acquired warrants. On the other hand, if the warrants are not assumed as part of the acquisition, this means that the new shares and warrants issued by the entity are issued as consideration for the acquisition of cash in the listing service only. 
in which case it needs to be determined which IFRS standards applies to the acquisition of the cash and the listing service. Now, whilst the stock exchange listing does not meet the definition of an intangible asset, IFRS 2 applies in accounting for all share-based payment transactions, whether or not the entity can identify specifically the goods or services received. So in the submitted fact pattern, the fair value of the instrument issued by the entity to acquire this back exceeds the fair value of the identifiable net assets acquired. Therefore, the entity is also receiving a stock exchange listing service for which it has issued equity instrument as part of a share-based payment transaction and which is measured as the difference between the fair value of the instrument issued to acquire the spec and the fair value of the identifiable net assets acquired. So for this stock exchange listing service, the share-based payment guidance in IFRS 2 applies. So in summary, depending on the specific facts and circumstances of the transaction, the entity issues ordinary shares or ordinary shares and warrants in exchange for acquiring cash for the stock exchange listing service and for assuming any liabilities related to the spec warrants, if any. Therefore, the committee concluded that the entity applies IFRS 2 in accounting for the instruments issued to acquire the stock exchange listing service and IS 32 in accounting for instruments issued to acquire cash and assume any liabilities related to the spec warrants. So this is essentially a high-level summary of the co committee's tentative conclusions. I, I realize this is quite complicated. So if you're interested in more details on this topic, I recommend you have a detailed read of the tentative agenda decision as well as the related staff paper. Thanks, Carsten. And what are your personal reflections on this issue? First of all, I think a key takeaway on this matter is that entities need to think about whether or not they have acquired the spec warrants. I think this is no surprise, as this has been one of the key considerations in practice in the past. Now, as I mentioned, the TED is providing a bit more guidance in this area, but my sense is that there may still be some judgment involved in making this, that assessment, depending on the legal structure and the exact fact and, facts and circumstances of the transactions. Second, if an entity determines that it does not assume the warrants as part of the transaction, the TED suggests that in addition to the application of IFRS 2 for the acquired listing service, an entity would, would, would apply IS32 to account for the shares and warrants issued to acquire cash. This means that an entity would need to think about which instruments were issued for cash and which were issued for services. Essentially, this means that the entity would need to allocate the shares and warrants issued to the acquisition of cash and to the acquisition of the listing service. However, there are no requirements in IFRS standards that specifically apply in doing that allocation. Now, the staff paper is suggesting that this might be done on a relative fair value basis, which, you know, which seems a reasonable method, but also quite complex. And also, at least in my mind, raises some questions about the subsequent accounting for the warrants issued. Personally, I think that this conclusion actually does come as a bit of a surprise, as I'm not aware that such an allocation has been actually been done in practice in the past. So this is definitely something to think about. And my sense is that this may substantially change practice going forward if this is finalized. 
Thanks, Carsten. That's a very valuable personal insight into the matter. And I agree, if this is an issue impacting you as our listener, or you would like to learn more about the issue, please take a read of the staff paper and the tentative agenda decision. Both the issues discussed today are subject to a tentative agenda decision, which are now open for comments. The deadline for those comment letters is the 23rd of May. Carsten, thank you for sharing your insights into the IFRS Interpretations Committee. As always, it's very helpful and a great summary of the meeting and what the key points raised were. I'd like to end by saying thank you to all those listening. I hope you found it as insightful as I did. And until next time, stay safe and happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.